Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Kevin Avery about his book, Everything is an Afterthought, The Life and Writings of Paul Nelson, published in 2011 by Fantagraphics Books. Paul Nelson was writer for Rolling Stone magazine, an inventor of what is now commonly understood as rock criticism, and A&R man for Mercury Records who discovered the New York Dolls. Nelson's writings, many of which are contained in the second part of this book, provide moving portraits not only of rock musicians as people with troubles like you and me. They also show Nelson as someone who is passionate about rock as an art form, as well as a man with a sincere belief that rock musicians can express feelings and ideas that are both personal and ubiquitous. They can represent the human condition in sublime fashion. Avery's book represents a collection of Nelson's writings about Jackson Brown, Leonard Cohen, Rod Stewart, Warren Zevon, and the New York Dolls, among others. Before the writings, however, Avery provides a detailed biography of Paul Nelson. From his upbringing in Warren, Minnesota, to the final days of his life in New York City, Avery shows Nelson as someone with a singular focus to be his own man, his own American hero. Though his first love was movies, Nelson's writings focused on music, with some divergence into film and literature. He, along with a friend, founded the Little Sandy Review, a folk music magazine, worked on the staffs of Sing Out and Rolling Stone, and published articles for Musician and the Village Voice, along with others. Nelson's story is a tragic one, not unlike the myths of the musical, celluloid, and literary heroes he so admired. He dropped out of the writing business in the 1980s to work at a video rental store. He lived the last decades of his life utterly alone, in poverty, and in the end with Alzheimer's disease. Kevin Avery is also the author of Conversations with Clint, Paul Nelson's Lost Interviews with Clint Eastwood, 1979-1983. to He lives in Brooklyn, New York, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Kevin, and, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Hi, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for being on our show. <laughs> Your, your book is, is, is divided into to two parts. Book one is the biography of Paul Nelson, and book two is a collection of his writings. But I thought, so I thought we'll run our interview roughly like that. But first, please, Kevin, tell us a bit about your bio- biography. Sure. Uh, well, I was actually born and raised in Salt Lake City, which uh, you know, is about five hours north of where, where you are. And... Uh, lived there my entire life uh, up until uh, 2005. At the end of 2005, uh, I I moved back to uh, Brooklyn, where I live now, uh, to get married. Um, And growing up, I I had always wanted to write. I I can remember writing as far back as when I was four years old. And uh, uh, I, I... over the years, began writing short stories uh, and submitting them to magazines, uh, and you know, had some luck with that. Sold a few uh, in early. Uh, I guess it was around 1992. I met a, a gentleman who became a very good friend, and he was also the editor of a local magazine. 
and he invited me to uh, start writing about music, and uh, which really appealed to me because I, I was a very passionate uh, fan of, of, of rock music, especially, and uh, some of my favorite writers had been critics. So, so I uh, started writing for him. I remember the first review I wrote was for a, uh, a Neil Young concert in Park City, Utah. And over the years, uh, probably from around 1992 through around 2000, I, I wrote a considerable amount of uh, nonfiction about uh, not only music, but popular culture. And, uh, you know, got a chance to review, uh, interview, uh, you know, a lot of people whose music I admired. And uh, I, I did that, like I say, till around 2000 or so, and, and, and then kind of got away from, from writing for a few years. And jump ahead to, you know, like I say, end of 2005, when I, I moved back to Brooklyn to get married. And uh, I, I made a list for myself as far as things I needed to do before I left and things I needed to do once I, I arrived in New York. And on that second list at the top, I had put reach out to Paul Nelson. And I, I wrote Paul Nelson a, a letter. Uh, it was as much a proposal uh, as it was a fan letter, I guess, suggesting that we work together to anthologize some of his best works. I, I knew that Paul hadn't written in some time. Uh, and I knew that he, for the last 14 or 15 years, had been a, worked as a clerk in a video store, Evergreen Video, in the West Village. So that's where I sent the letter, and uh, I, that was probably in February of 2006, and I never heard back from Paul. Uh, in June, when I got married, um, a friend was visiting from out of town, from, Flor uh, from Florida, and I was with him in the city, uh, showing him around Manhattan, and we we ended up in, in the West Village. I remember it was raining like crazy that day, and I, I happened to look up and we were in front of Evergreen Video. So I thought, you know, this was a great time to go in and introduce myself and and see if Paul had indeed received my letter. And uh, the the young man behind the the, the desk, uh, college-age kid, uh, you know, informed us that Paul hadn't worked there in about a year or so. So I, I left not really knowing whether or not my letter had ever found its way to Paul. Um a month or so later in July, uh, I received a phone call from a gentleman who introduced himself as Michael Seidenberg. And he said that he was a good friend of Paul Nelson's. And he informed me, he says, I don't know if you know or not, but, but Paul passed away a couple of weeks ago. And he told me that, uh, you know, for the last year of Paul's life, he had not been in very good health, both mentally and physically. And, uh, but the one, the reason for his call is he says, I, I wanted to let you know that Paul indeed did receive your letter and he was very touched by it. He was very touched that, that, you know, somebody remembered his work and it was something that he really wanted to do. Uh, you know, he kept saying, I, I really want to do this when I get, you know, feeling better. And, you know, unfortunately he just never got feeling better. And, uh, so I, you know, it just that would literally was the day I began writing everything as an afterthought, uh, working on it and researching it. 
and uh, you know which which I would do over the next four years or so. And and weren't you um, in doing the research? Weren't you invited into his apartment by someone? Yeah. Um, what had happened was you know one of the first people that I I needed to get in touch with was Paul's son, uh, a gentleman named Mark Nelson, uh, a lawyer who who lived in, in Dallas, Texas. And uh, Michael Seidenberg put me in touch with him. And, you know, he explained that, that Paul and Mark had, had not really seen each other very many times in their life, that uh, Paul had uh, uh, left uh, Mark and his, his mother uh, when when Mark was very young and that they'd only seen each other a handful of times since then. But I felt it was, you know, very important to reach out to Mark and introduce myself and, and, you know, tell him what it was I wanted to do, uh, which at that point really was just, you know, to collect all, you know, in my mind, I would collect all of Paul Nelson's work. I, I at that point, you know, it was a kind of a naive thought because I really wasn't aware of, of how much Paul had written. Uh, and so I, I reached out to Mark and, you know, we, we seemed to hit it off and he, he gave me his blessing to go ahead with this project. And, um, uh, in, in January of 2007, uh, at, you know, Paul, Paul died probably toward the end of uh, June, uh, or the first of, of July of 2006 His his body wasn't found for about a week. So it's not quite certain, you know, which, the exact day that he died, but his body was found on, on the 4th of July. Um, from that time until January or so, the apartment had been sealed because uh, nobody had been able to identify Paul's body because of the condition that the body was in and because it was very hot summer, you know, time of summer mm-hmm. when, when he died. Uh, the, the police, you know, wouldn't let Michael Seidenberg come up and identify the body because of that the, the apartment had remained sealed by the medical examiner while they conducted DNA tests. So in, in January of 2007, when, when Mark flew to New York to collect his dad's belongings, um, he, uh, he actually, he, he called me that first night and said, uh, you, you, you probably want to come over here. I, I have something I want to show you. And so I indeed went into the city and, um, what he wanted to show me was that there was at least, I should explain in Paul's last year, especially he has, he had terrible trouble with his short term memory. And, uh, he, uh, used to write notes to himself. His apartment was just filled with notes. Uh, and they, they would be from ranging from anything from his favorite tracks on a particular Bob Dylan album, uh, to, what he needed to buy, what kind of cough drops were his favorite, and where was the best place to get them. But among all of these notes uh, posted in various spots around the apartment were notes to himself to get in touch with me, uh, uh, to, you know, uh, arrange to have, uh, you know, lunch or dinner with me at at his favorite restaurant and, uh, uh, you know, other places. He just had my name and my address and my phone number tacked up and, you know, with a little note saying, call the book guy. And uh, so, it, you know, I, I'd already at that point been working on the project for five or six months. But, uh, you know, that 
that really compelled me to to move forward and finish this project because you know I, I, I at that point knew there was no doubt that this was something that he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So let's get into his life then. Um, tell us a bit about uh, Paul's early life in Minnesota. He was born in uh, Warren, Minnesota, uh, which is just right up in the very northwestern corner of Minnesota. Uh, on January 21st, 1936. And uh, he, he had, uh, his parents gave him a very, very religious upbringing, uh, especially his mother. Uh, he, uh, Paul himself was, was never really that religious. Uh, and so, you know, that certainly caused some friction, you know, during his formative years. Uh, his, his parents were, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, they were first generation uh, uh, Norwegian or uh, you know Swedish Swedish immigrant parents, and uh, they they belonged to the Evangelical Mission Covenant Church. And uh, among the things that this church did not believe in and condone, you know, was music and dancing and and movies. Uh, you know, Paul. Uh, you know, never saw his first movie until he, he was, you know, probably close to a teenager. And uh, at at one point, uh, when he was in high school or so, uh, he, he came home from school one day to find that his, his mother had burned all of his um, uh, his comic books, and I, as well as I believe his copy of The Naked and the Dead, and. Uh, so you know, there, needless to say, there was there was there's a little bit of friction between him and his parents, but probably, you know, nothing uh, unlike most teenage kids uh, as, as they grow up and adopt their own taste. But um, Paul, you know, gravitated to writing very early on, and uh, you know, he 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 read, you know, he boasted that he read every book in in the Warren Library probably three or four times the, the library was, was pretty small. And, you know, the town itself was small. It was only about 1,500 people. Uh, and, you know, Paul lived there until he went to the University of uh, Minnesota in Minneapolis. And, uh, you know, it was in there, you know, it was there for several years. Uh, and uh, that was where he you know, met a gentleman named Bobby Zimmerman mm-hmm. and, uh, Bobby Zimmerman, of course, would go on to become, uh, Bob Dylan. And their stories are actually kind of, kind of parallel, don't they? They do. Uh, you know, uh, Dylan grew up in Hibbing, Minnesota, uh, and he ended up going to, uh, the university of Minnesota as well. And, uh, from there he, he moved on to New York city and, uh, you know, Paul wasn't really very far behind him. Uh, Paul and uh, uh, Paul ended up marrying his high school sweetheart, Doris. And, uh, you know, they, they ended up moving to New York City in, I believe it was around 1963. And Paul moved there to accept a position as managing editor of Sing Out magazine. And at that time, Sing Out was, you know, the preeminent folk music magazine. Uh, and uh, needless to say, over the years, uh, his and, and Bob Dylan's path 
uh, you know, crossed, you know, many times and uh, probably, you know, no more significantly than at the, uh, you know, the Newport Folk Festival uh, in 1965 uh, when, you know, Dylan plugged in and went electric and Paul Nelson famously became one of the few uh, folk music critics who championed uh, Dylan going electric. And uh, he, he felt so strongly about that that the the article he wrote about it also doubled as his resignation letter from Sing Out. Uh, he, he knew that uh, that there was going to be a, a backlash of the, the traditional folksters uh, you know, uh, not not agreeing with Dylan's decision, and and Paul didn't really want to be part of that. He, uh, you know, he always boasted that when when Dylan went electric, so did he, and uh, he he was interested in at the you know at the time they called it the new music, and that that new music uh, you know is is what we came to know as rock and roll. Mm-hmm. If you could back up just a few years to to the Little Sandy Review and tell us something about that. Yeah, in the uh, in the late fifties, fifty nine, nineteen sixty, Paul and his uh, college uh, best his best friend at college, a gentleman named John Pancake, uh, they they got it. You know, they they both loved to write. They both loved to to uh, talk about music and talk about movies. And uh, they actually flipped a coin. They, they decided they wanted to start a, a, a little magazine of their own. And uh, they flipped a coin to see whether it was going to be about music or about movies. And uh, music won. And so they 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 founded the Little Sandy Review, which they co-wrote for a few years. And uh, it was a totally homegrown thing, you know, that they were put together on a mimeograph machine and and. Uh, you know, put it all together themselves. And, you know, they, it actually became a very, very significant, uh, you know, uh, publication. And it's, uh, uh, it was just a very, very small, elegant, little, uh, uh, simple publication. Uh, but over the years, it was, it was amazing how many people Paul would run into who, uh, you know, subscribed to that magazine. And, uh, they really focused on traditional serious folk music. Uh, they they uh, they really didn't like uh, how folk music was being uh, diluted and popularized. And uh, um, but in like I say, in the course of this, uh, uh, you know, probably one of their most significant readers was was Bob Dylan. Uh, you know, and, and at, at one time, uh, you know, Bob came over and, uh, you know, even approached them about, uh, uh, you know, perhaps promoting him or managing him in some way. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the famous stories, uh, and, and Paul tells this story in the, uh, the documentary, no direction home, um, the Martin Scorsese film about Bob Dylan. Uh, Paul appears there and tells the story about how one weekend when when Paul and John Pancake were away for the weekend, uh, Dylan came over and helped himself to about 25 of their uh, their rare their rare folk records. And uh, 
those, those, those records, you know, were very significant in, in, you know, Dylan's career in terms of, he was absorbing all of this, this folk music, or, you know, Ramblin' Jack Elliott and all of this other music that he'd never heard before. And, um, so, you know, that, that was something that, uh, the, the way the story goes, John Pancake really never forgave Dylan for doing that. But of, of course, uh, uh, Paul did. And, uh, as I said, their, their paths crossed again several times through the years. I think Dylan writes about that too. Doesn't he in, in Chronicles? He might, he might mention that. Yeah. In, in Bob story. Dylan's Chronicles volume one, uh, you know, he, he, he writes about it there. And, uh, although he, it's very, you know, Dylan, always the chameleon, uh, you know, he, he doesn't even mention, uh, Paul Nelson in Chronicles. Um, uh, though of course, when he, you know, he, he introduces Nelson in, in No Direction Home and, you know, where he's very much part of the story, but he doesn't mention John Pancake. So, uh, you know, there's always been kind of a debate on whose records, you know, did Dylan actually steal? Were they, were they Paul's or were they John's? And John always said they were Paul's. Paul always said they were John's. Uh, and when I, when I talked to John Pancake, he says, well, I really don't, he says, we all had the, we both had the same record. So he said, you know, it doesn't matter how you tell the story. So, mm-hmm. so, so after, after, uh, Newport, uh, Paul transitions fr- from, a a writer of folk music to a writer of rock. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and who, I'm sorry, please go ahead. Oh yeah. He, 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 he and he certainly learned, what he knew uh, or used what he had learned about folk music uh, in, in his rock writing, because he, you know, he very much saw where this music had all come from. I mean, down through the years, even when he was, you know, trying to sign the New York dolls to Mercury records, you know, he realized that that music came out of a, out of a great tradition of folk music and uh, uh, you know, especially the lyrical content of that music. Uh, and, Paul, you know, literally is, is one of the guys who invented the form of, of rock music criticism. Uh, you know, he was he was there when the music started and he was discovering it. And, uh, you know, that's that was one thing about Paul at his best is when he was excited about, you know, a, an artist and maybe even a new type of music. Uh, you could just feel that enthusiasm and that excitement in his writing and. You know, that's it's the same as whether he was writing about Dylan going electric or whether he was writing about the, you know, the uh, never mind the bullocks. Here's the sex pistols. Uh, it, it was uh, you got the sense that, you know, he had discovered something exciting and something very meaningful to him. And he wanted to share it with you, the reader. When does he start working at Rolling Stone? Uh, the first time was actually in 1969. He. Uh, he, he was a freelancer at that time, and he uh, he had penned a, a, a piece or two for Rolling Stone, and Jan Wenner, the, the publisher of Rolling Stone, actually put a little item uh, in the magazine introducing Paul as kind of their, their East Coast representative. This is when the magazine was still based out in San Francisco, and for... It, probably just for a matter of months, Paul held that position. Uh, and uh, it, it wouldn't be until 
1978 that he actually returned to the magazine to be on staff, although in the, the years in between, he, he certainly freelanced for them considerably. But in, in 1970, he was actually invited to uh, work at Mercury Records in their publicity department. And uh, Paul accepted that, uh, that post. And so from 1970 to 1975, Paul uh, worked first in publicity and then very quickly segued into A&R. And uh, there were years that, you know, Paul called the, uh, the best years of his life and the worst years of his life. And uh, so, while at Mercury, since since you you transitioned to their force, he, uh, he 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 courts the New York Dolls. He courts the New York Dolls. He uh, he his good friend and fellow critic and uh, he a gentleman who who he got a job at, at Mercury Records, uh, Bud Scapa, uh, happened to see the New York Dolls playing one night at uh, I believe at the Mercer Arts Center, and he. He, uh, he and Paul went to, to see this band play. And, and Bud actually, you know, he, uh, he, he, he wasn't overly impressed at that time, I should say. But Paul, Paul thought they were magnificent. And Paul, you know, between the time he first discovered the dolls and the time he actually signed them to Mercury, he estimates that he probably saw them play about 200 concerts. And they were just... They, he fell in love with them. They were not like anything he'd ever seen before. Like I mentioned before, they, they had this great tradition of songwriting that they, they drew from. And, uh, they, you know, their, their music was exciting. And, uh, he, uh, it, it, it took him a couple of, uh, it, it took him at least a year to convince his hires up at Mercury that this is a band that they really needed to sign. And, uh, when they did uh, finally agree, uh, you know, unfortunately, they, they only released two albums while they were on Mercury. And, uh, the, you know, the band ends up disintegrating. And uh, it, it was a very it was very difficult for Paul because he, he really believed in the band and uh, he wanted to see them succeed commercially. And, you know, in his lifetime, they, they certainly never did. And, you know, it was kind of ironic that the uh, you know, the, the band still exists today, at least in the form of, of David Johansson and Sylvain Sylvain. And, uh, you know, shortly after Paul died in, in 2006, uh, you know, the band reformed and, and, you know, put out another album. They almost seem kind of an anomaly, don't they? I mean, you know, he's writing about, he, he, he really likes Jackson Brown, Warren Zevon, Leonard Cohen, these singer-songwriter types. And then, and then he falls for the New York Dolls, and even punk, punk rock generally, he kind of falls for, doesn't he? Oh yeah, he loved the Ramones. You know, he he, he thought that, you know he, the Ramones made him laugh, and you know he he found their music exciting. All the one thing that all of these artists have, uh, you know, we, when you talk about, you know, especially you know Leonard Cohen and Jackson Brown, two of Paul's favorites, uh, is. They have a, just a great tradition of, of uh, uh, lyrics uh, that they offer, and, and you know, Paul. If anything, Paul was a lyric guy. He, he really, you know, he could connect to uh, songs that uh, that that told a story or songs that you know evoked a feeling. 
And, you know, that was, you know, one thing that, uh, you know, attracted him to the, 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 uh, the New York dolls. He, uh, you know, at the heart of it, you know, that I think Robert Christgau said that to me, he says that was Paul's genius that, you know, amidst all this noise and everything at the heart of the New York dolls, he could see, you know, David Johansson's great lyrics. And, uh, so, you know, it, uh, in a way, it really it made sense. Uh, he he was always drawn to these people who, uh, who he could identify with. I guess is one way of putting it. Uh, if 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 he really loved a piece of work, you know, let's say Jackson Brown, he wanted to know as much about that piece of work as possible, and you know, which which is why. Um, in many cases, you know, Paul developed friendships with these people uh, because, you know, what better way to, to learn more about a person's work and understand a person's work than, you know, to get to know the person themselves. Um, is there, I believe there is a bit of a bit of a debate about whether a, a critic should befriend the people they're writing with, right? And did oh, absolutely. Paul, Paul think about that much? Uh, Paul, I don't know that Paul really ever gave it a second thought. Uh, it, it certainly, uh, you know, did concern uh, some of his fellow critics uh, because, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's one of the first things you, you learn in journalism is, you know, don't, don't get too close to the subject you're writing about. And uh, by the same token, though, uh, Paul never would have been able to write some of his best articles if he didn't have uh, this relationship that he'd forged. And, uh, you know, the, the best example that leaps to mind is, is Paul's uh, 1981 Rolling Stone cover story about Warren Zevon's battle with alcoholism, mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, Paul reveals, you know, not only that, that he and Zevon have been, you know, very good friends for the last few years, but uh, he even, participated in uh, Zevon's intervention, uh, you know, when he went into rehab. And, uh, you know, if, if Paul hadn't gotten that close to, to Zevon, that, that piece would never exist. Um, you know, similar articles that he wrote about Jackson Brown. Um, you know, the downside of it is what happens when, uh, you know, this artist, who is your friend, uh, releases an album that maybe you don't like. And, you know, Paul found him in that situation when uh, uh, Bruce Springsteen, who, you know, he, he had a relationship when Bruce Springsteen released Nebraska, uh, I believe in 1982. Uh, Paul just did not know what to make of the album. And he wasn't sure how he was going to write about it. And, uh, it, it, that that particular piece is included in the book, and it's you know it's it's very interesting uh, how how Paul ultimately does end up writing about it, and he uh, uh, you know kind of reaches back to his days of, of of writing about folk music at, at Sing Out and the, the Little Sandy Review, and and you know that's how he learns to understand and appreciate uh, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. So he, he leaves Mercury Records and he goes back to Rolling Stone, right? Well, what he does is... that is, the order? Well, yeah. He, he left Mercury Records in 75. Uh, 
the dolls had broken up. They, they were no longer on Mercury. And uh, Paul left Mercury. Uh, and, you know, and depending on who you talk to, he was either fired or he left of his own accord. Um, and he started freelancing again. Uh, and fairly quickly got a job as record reviews editor at uh, Circus Magazine. And he was there for a couple of years, and that was when the invitation to come and be record reviews editor at Rolling Stone came. And so from uh, 1978 through 1982, uh, he was record reviews editor at Rolling Stone, and that was probably his most prolific period as a critic. Mm-hmm. Uh, was he uh, comfortable being a, a, a rock critic, or did, did he think uh, he could he could be better? Oh, I don't think he, he he certainly didn't see anything wrong with being a rock critic. Uh, in his heart, he, he always wanted to be a movie critic. Uh, uh, as much as he loved uh, music, movies were his first love, and uh, he just said that at the point when he came to New York in the early '60s, it was it was easier to get a job as a music critic than it was uh, a movie critic. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, over, over the years, he wrote a, you know, a, a handful of just really stunning reviews of, uh, of films that, uh, um, you know, like Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry and Sam Peckinpah's The Getaway. And uh, they're, they're just very interesting articles and you know very vibrant and they really hint at you know what what he could have been as a as a music critic he didn't he certainly didn't see anything wrong with being a music critic i think he felt like uh he, he was serving as a very valuable conduit you know between, between the music and and the you know the, the potential fans that were out there and if anything what discouraged him most about being a critic was uh you know, when artists he would admire, uh, you know, like the Sex Pistols or, say, the Clash, uh, you know, ultimately did not succeed uh, commercially at the time, you know, or did not stay together. And, uh, you know, what ended up happening with Paul is the music changed and it went in a direction that he really didn't care for very much, uh, you know, in in the 80s when what was rock, what was punk rock and new wave became very plastic. And, uh, that's when he really lost interest. And what does he do then when he loses interest? Where does he Uh, go from there? Well, he, when he left Rolling Stone, he, uh, he ran into Kurt Loder in the hallways of Rolling Stone. And, you know, Kurt asked him what he was going to do. And and Paul said he, he wanted to go find a job where he didn't have to think for a while. And, uh, the the last year or so at Rolling Stone had been very intense for him. There had been many battles with publisher Jan Wenner. Jan Wenner wanted wanted the uh, record reviews to get shorter. Uh, you know, Paul Paul could give several thousand words to a particular article, and and uh, he you know he he was very protective of the record reviews section and. Uh, on the other hand, here, here was the publisher, Jan Winter, who wanted these reviews to be, you know, he got it down to a formula, you know, that could be no more than, you know, 32 or 33 lines long. And, he, you know, 
They could not, uh, you know, reference other people's works in a derogatory way. I mean, it was, he, he had a, a, a complete formula that he had issued in, you know, in, in a memo. And, uh, you know, he wanted, uh, he wanted the star, the, the reviews to, uh, you know, have stars, you know, or, you know, one star through four or five stars. And, and Paul just, he couldn't abide by that. And so he resigned and, uh, he, he did exactly what he, he said. He uh, initially his goal was to you know write some books. Uh, he, he got he got a a contract to write a biography of Neil Young. He was going to write Jackson Brown's biography. Uh, he wanted to write a book about uh, detective novelist Ross McDonald. And uh, unfortunately, none of those things ever ever came to be. Uh, around the same time. Uh, Paul's mom died, and uh, you know he had something of an emotional breakdown, and uh, he uh, he ended up uh, for a few years being copy editor at a uh, at a publication called the Jewish Week, and uh, did not write about music again, uh, I believe, until 1990 or 91, and uh, at that point was invited to write. Uh, some reviews and some articles for Musician Magazine, uh, which he did for the next uh, year and a half or two years. And uh, again, it just, the the music that interested him was very few and far between. And uh, he, uh, you know, never really wrote about music again, I think, until 1997 or so when a, a couple little tiny capsule reviews of his appeared in People magazine. And uh, it just, again, the, the music wasn't the kind of music that interested him. So, and he, he wasn't about to, you know, try to reacquaint himself with what rock music had become. And uh, so whatever writing he did from that point on really was just for himself. Mm. He, he seemed um, enamored with the idea of, of uh, both in movies and rock, I suppose, of, of you know the great American hero like Clint Eastwood, the, many of the characters he played in, in Bruce Springsteen. Where does that come from? Uh, it comes from the tradition of... Uh, of and, and, he, and he seemed like he got disappointed, as you said, sometimes when, when his rock heroes turned out not to be heroes. Yeah, well... In, in terms of the 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 image of the the hero, certainly comes out of the the tradition of you know John Ford westerns, uh, Howard Hawks uh, film noir and westerns as well, uh, as well as the hard boiled detective fiction that that Paul you know just loved. Uh, in in terms of uh, yeah, I mean, would, would he sometimes get? fall in love too much with his subjects, uh, probably. And, uh, uh, you know, that was probably too why he wasn't able to write about some of them. You know, he said that sometimes what he wanted to say was so big that he just couldn't find the words. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and as the music changed, uh, you know, some of certainly some of the artists that he had championed their, their music changed as well. And, and sometimes, um, you know, weren't up in Paul's opinion to, you know, their earlier work. Uh, you know, in case of somebody like Dylan, um, 
Paul, some of Paul's most glowing reviews uh, that he ever wrote and some of the best pieces he ever wrote were about Dylan's music. By the same token, some of the most damning reviews he ever wrote were about Bob Dylan's music as well. And uh, so he, you know, he, he knew that that came with the territory. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, you know, I can't remember somebody that I interviewed for the book, you know, made the comment, you know, Paul just didn't realize that everything ultimately disappoints. I, you know, I'm not sure that that's true or that Paul necessarily believed in that, but, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he certainly did have his artists that he admired and, uh, you know, even, you know, till the end, uh, you know, guys, especially like Leonard Cohen and, and Dylan, uh, you know, he, he certainly continued to admire their work. I think you include, I believe it's a, a one sentence review of Dylan at Budokan. And there's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm uh, paraphrasing here, but I think the, the entire review consisted of, uh, uh, what besides God has happened to this man. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the best ones in there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how about the, now I'm just going to kind of pick and choose from, from, because there's a lot of article of Paul's articles in, in the book, writings in the book. But um, can, can, I, can I say something before? You yes, do? please. We, we, we talked about the fact uh, that the book is broken up into two parts. The, the book one is is basically Paul's biography. Book two is indeed, as you said, a, a collection of Paul's best writings. But more than that, uh, the way the book was structured was uh, there are many points and questions that are raised in. Paul's biography that are answered in book two in Paul's own writing. The one thing that as a, as a young reader, when I, when I first started reading Paul, uh, that I, I was certainly aware of was he, he was writing from a very personal standpoint, not necessarily autobiographical because uh, he, he never would really very seldom, you know, cross that line. He always got the feeling that it, you know, he was involved in something he was writing. It was kind of as an, as a, uh, uh, um, not necessarily something that he wanted to do of his own will. He was just sort of a, a participant. But you uh, always got the sense of Paul between the lines. And indeed, the more I learned about his own life, the more I discovered in his own writing that he was indeed writing very autobiographically. He even he even admits that to Leonard Cohen at one point when he says, you know, when I was writing about your music, I was really writing about myself. And so that was the opportunity that I saw with, with the, the second part of the book was to not only present Paul's, some of Paul's best writing, but at that point to kind of let Paul start telling the rest of his story and answer some of the questions that had been risen, you know, that had been raised in book one. And in fact, there was a, a, a line that, that Paul writes that, that struck me about what you're talking about when he's, it's an article about Neil Young called Young's One Stop World Tour. And he writes that, you know, he likes the idea that Neil Young seems totally alone on stage. Um, and, uh, you know, as as you write toward the end of Paul's Paul's life, he's he's totally alone. Yeah. Um, yeah, he... Uh his, you know, his, as the years went on, his, his taste in music 
grew smaller. It was, you know, it's, it, it's almost like thinking of an aperture getting smaller and smaller and smaller. His, his taste got smaller and the people in his life, uh, the number of people in his life got smaller as well. And he, he did seem to sort of, uh, uh, you know, recede from them and, uh, you know, to the point where he, he wanted to turn their calls. And, and so by the end of his life, he did, he, now here's a guy who in, in the mid late seventies, you know, is literally at the center of, of the rock and roll scene, working at Rolling Stone and, and interviewing these stars and his friends with him and everything. And, and by the end of his life, you know, he's, he's dead a week before anybody even finds his body. And he, he saw this, at least in this article, and Neil Young, he he, uh, he must have been seeing himself, I think, it, it almost sounds like. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how about uh, his, his piece in the Rolling Stone Illustrated History of Rock about Dylan um, that gets eliminated from the second edition? Yeah. Uh, he... Uh, he had been asked to write four pieces for that, that, that book. And, and anybody who's got that book remembers that it. it's this terrific oversized book that has a big red cover. And it's a, it's a wonderful book. And, and Paul's piece on Bob Dylan, uh, first of all, he, he, he didn't turn it in on time, which was not uncommon for Paul. Paul, you know, throughout his career battled with writer's block and, and it, deadlines were very difficult for him to meet. But when he finally did deliver the piece, it, it certainly wasn't what the editor had expected. What what Paul had done was he had uh, not only written about Dylan and his career to that point, but he had done it and structured it uh, kind of like a mini detective novel. Mm-hmm. And it, it was like an homage to... You know his his favorite detective writers like Raymond uh, Raymond Chandler and Ross McDonald and Dashiell Hammett, and it it is just truly a wonderful piece. And uh, unfortunately, the 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 editor of, of that particular book didn't agree. Uh, you know, he, he thought it kind of clashed with everything else in in that book, which was pretty straight rock journalism. And so when the second edition came around, the uh, that piece was was missing. Mm-hmm. Did, 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 you write that that affected Paul. He was he was a bit uh, disappointed about that, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, not. I, I don't know if uh, I don't know if he speaks of that particularly or not. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't recall that. Maybe it's this ongoing battle he's having with Jan Winter and and uh, what the criticism should look like and. That definitely, yeah, that definitely happened. Um, uh, I have written here, Paul Paul likes records, and I have this in quotes, about things that matter, even if the, if the record isn't musically perfect. This is under an, an Elliot Murphy review. So uh, what are things that matter for Paul, and what does he mean by that? Uh, he's talking about friendship. He's talking about, um, you know, doing the right thing. You know, I, th- I think... Uh, you know, something that resonated for Paul certainly was, you know, you go back to the big sleep and, uh, you know, uh, Humphrey Bogart saying, you know, it, it, it uh, doesn't matter what you do. You know, if your partner's been killed, you, you're supposed to do something. And uh, Paul's just he's talking about uh, uh, here's the thing with Paul. And, and it, it says so much about 
why he ended up the way he did. Uh, you know, Paul, Paul had three great loves, uh, music, books, and movies. And when you think about them, ultimately they're things that you end up enjoying by yourself. Um, and by the end of his life, you know, unfortunately, uh, those things had taken the place of people. Um, and you know, the, for Paul, the things that mattered were, you know, people who could express themselves in art, uh, and, you know, write about things that would, you know, move people, inspire people. And, uh, so I, I think that's what he was talking about. Um, you write that his Patty Smith piece in here is Paul at his best. You write that, even though he doesn't seem to like Patty Smith's music too much. Yeah. Talk about that piece a little bit. Well, I think it's, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, at the time, it was certainly a brave piece because you know, critics were falling all over each other to admire Patti Smith and her, her debut album horses. And Paul just couldn't figure her out, uh, in terms of not figure her out per se, but figure out why she was deemed as, as, uh, successful, uh, as she had been artistically. Uh, he, he knew Patty, uh, you know, marginally. They used to run each, into each other at various used bookstores around the city. And uh, But he he did, I'll tell you, one thing that really mattered to Paul was he, he, he liked sincerity. He liked honesty. And I, I don't think he found Patty to be the most sincere person. Uh, he... Uh, he didn't like people who, you know, uh, pretended to be something that they were not. And I, I think there was a lack of authenticity in her work that uh, just rubbed him the wrong way. And, uh, you know, and, and what, what I meant about Paul at his best is even if you disagree with him, because I I, I, I I like Horses. I think it's a great album. And at the same time, I can, I can read what he's written there and uh, it, he, he puts forth a great argument. I don't always agree with him, but I, I think he puts forward a great arg- argument there. And, uh, you know, when Paul at his best was just his writing. It didn't matter what he was writing about. He, he, he made, he, you could tell it was inter- it was important to him and it was important to him that you understand, you know, why it was important to him. Mm-hmm. So. Let's see. Let's skip to, to Leonard Cohen. We've already brought him up, but uh, uh, you write that, that he identifies more closely with Cohen maybe than any other artist he covers. And he writes an important uh, interview, has an important interview with Leonard Cohen um, that becomes very personal, as you say. Yeah, um, they, they uh, you know, Cohen's, Cohen's song certainly struck a chord with Paul, the uh, Paul, if anything, was was a romantic, you know, in, in every sense of the word. And you know, Paul, uh, Leonard Cohen's songs about uh, you know romance has gone bad, and uh, aspiring for you know perfect love, they certainly struck a chord with Paul. Um, and you know, he encountered 
Cohen a few times through the years, but in 1991, Paul was actually given the opportunity to uh, to fly from New York to L.A. and interview Leonard Cohen for uh, um, the L.A. Weekly. And uh, he, he does, and he ends up spending, uh, I believe, four or five days uh, at Leonard Cohen's house uh, in, in California uh, interviewing him. And uh, it, they're, they're just they're fascinating interviews. I've had the opportunity to listen to them. And, uh, you know, one of the things that they have in common is Cohen is, is, is several years older than most of the, the rock guys that Paul usually uh, interviews. And because Paul himself was, was older, uh, uh, he, you know, he was generally like 10 years older than most of the people he, he, he worked with over the years. And uh, he and Cohen just really hit it off. And, and Cohen, who, uh, you know, has certainly had his troubles with, with depression and has had, you know, breakdowns, uh, you know, became something of a uh, sympathetic ear for Paul. And uh, so their, their talks sometimes are very, very personal. And, uh, you know, Paul is very excited about the material that he's gotten. And, uh, and unfortunately, Paul returns to New York and is never, never able to write about this, you know, this particular interview. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe my favorite piece is towards the end of the book where he's been asked to, to write something for the, the history of Mercury records. Yes. And he, ba- and he basically ends, ends up interviewing himself. Yes. And, and it's, it's one of the funnier pieces. I mean, Paul's never seems really funny until this part. It's almost like a Lex, Lester Bangs kind of writing. Yeah. Paul, uh, you know, Paul could be very, very funny. He was very laconic and, you know, uh, he had a very dry sense of humor, and sometimes when it comes across in his pieces, it, it, it surprises you. Uh, this particular piece uh, uses a device that he actually used a few other times in his career, uh, where when he when he has mixed feelings about something, and uh, he, he he basically interviews himself, and uh, uh, you know, in, in the case of what we're talking about here, it, it's. On one hand, it's the uh, the artistic Paul uh, interviewing the more rational, uh, uh, down to earth Paul, uh, and like you say, it, it, some of it is very very funny, and it's it, it covers his five years of Mercury, and it it really focuses a lot on what he went through when he was trying to sign the New York Dolls to the label, and uh, you know, and it, and it. it Toward the end, it's, it's you know he makes it very clear too how how uh, heartbreaking it was for him when you know the dolls you know weren't a success and you know when the band split up and uh, to the point that it just it, it hurt too much to listen to their music uh, after all that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, to end up, there's a couple of, of interesting lines here. Um, towards the end you, you write that or, or maybe it's a quote from him where he says he, he lives his life like a work of art and that, that he's in that work of art and you also write about how he's, he's writing a never ending screenplay yeah yeah the, the, the first quote I think if I remember correctly is, and I don't remember the film but it's a Robert Mitchum film 
And uh, when, when Paul heard that line, he identified with it immediately. That yes, I'm I'm living my life like a work of art. And uh, he, the the screenplay you're talking about, uh, Paul's friends were aware that he was writing a screenplay. Uh, this, this is after he he. Uh, I mean, he, he actually, there, there were other screenplays that he started writing, you know, in the uh, 70s uh, that he never finished. But his friends in the 90s, uh, you know, he told them that he was working on a screenplay when he would go home from work at the video store at night. And, and he really en- enjoyed it. And uh, initially, you know, people thought, well, this is great. Paul's writing a screenplay. Paul loves movies. This, this makes perfect sense. You know, Paul's, Paul knows Martin Scorsese. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe this is something that will happen. But as the years went on, uh, you know, there was still this talk about this ongoing screenplay. And, uh, you know, some people were told that it was like a Western. Other people thought it was a war story. Other people thought it was more modern. Well, it, it, it turns out that it was really all, all of those things. It was one screenplay that he just kept writing over and over and over. And, uh, Literally in his uh, apartment after he died, there there were thousands of pages of this screenplay, and uh, for Paul, I think it was I think it was not only just escaping into the world that he had created in this screenplay. I think it was he finally was enjoying writing simply for himself. There were no deadlines. Uh, there was there was no editor. There was nobody, you know, cutting his lines. It was simply, finally, he, he could enjoy the process of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, uh, I'm always surprised when I get to the end of my hour, Kevin, and there's so much we didn't talk about. We, we didn't talk about much about Springsteen. We didn't talk much about Jackson Brown or Rod Stewart or Ross McDonald or Clint Eastwood. Uh-huh. Um but I, I, you know, I'll admit that I was a bit ignorant of of, of Paul Nelson's writing, and I, I know a lot more about it now. And uh, thank you for being on our show. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to a conversation with Kevin Avery about his book, Everything is an Afterthought, The Life and Writings of Paul Nelson, published by Fantagraphics Books in 2011. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.